Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. The Lexington Public Library is proud to partner with organizations like Bluegrass Community Foundation and the University of Kentucky to bring a new and compelling exhibit titled Undesign the Red Line. This exhibit highlights the deeply rooted and systemic history of structural racism around property ownership and real estate. The interactive exhibit, which was created by a social impact design studio called WE, explores policies like redlining and the implications it holds for African Americans and what we can do to undesign them. During the exhibit, the library has invited the community to read The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein and participate in several programs that are planned at various locations. This exhibit is open September 22nd through November 17th. We have to know how we got here to chart where we go to next. And to understand how redlining was practiced here in Lexington, we've invited Barbara Sutherland and Rona Roberts on the podcast to discuss their current project titled Segregated Lexington, which can be viewed on the website by the same name at segregatedlexington.com. Barbara and Rona are two white senior citizens who have been friends since college and who have both lived in Lexington for about 50 years. Rona is a writer and researcher and Barbara is a retired city employee and librarian. They share a long-term concern about racial justice. During the summer of 2020, Rona and Barbara were both inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement and by an article about the possibilities for a racially equitable economy. They recommitted to working with other white people to contribute to repair. After a fair amount of consideration, they decided to study the history and impact of segregated housing here in Lexington. They discovered ways in which the government at all levels perpetuated segregation through much of the 20th century. Rona and Barbara now work to share this information. Their goal is to create shared knowledge as a basis for addressing longstanding injustice. Hi, Rona. Hi, Barbara. Thank you guys so much for joining us on the podcast today to talk about Segregated Lexington, your project. Thank you, Miriam. We're glad to be here. Thank you. Yes, we are. So glad you guys agreed to do this with us. Before we get started, I'd like to get a little bit of background about how you guys met and how the project about Segregated Lexington came about. We met, I I think you might have been in graduate school, Rona, Mm -hmm. but I was in undergraduate school. Mm -hmm. So we were in college together at UK, and this was in the early 70s, sometime between 1970 and Mm -hmm. 1973. So we were in the telecommunications class together. (laughs) (laughs) A famous class. None of the equipment worked very well. It was very good for student bonding. (laughs) And Barbara was just an awesome human. So we've been friends ever since. Nice. Those, Those kind of friendships are worth a lot. So, yeah. How did you guys come about in developing um, this website or this blog about Lexington and its segregated history and trying to educate the public about the different aspects of segregation and redlining. Like a lot of other Americans, we started in the summer of 2020 trying to figure out as two elderly white people, what are we supposed to be doing about what we're seeing and becoming aware of really for the first time, the extent of, of racism. So 
we're in the, we're in a book group together. Mm-hmm. We've been in the same book group together for a lot of decades. I'm not sure how long, but I read an article on the eve of Juneteenth that year. It was called "Centering Blackness." I think the subtitle was "The Path to Economic Liberation for All," something like that. It profoundly affected me. I sent it to our book group, and Barbara responded the next week, and we started talking about the fact that we wanted to do something as people do. So our first thought was, well, we we first started saying, well, we need to be working toward reparations. That was just as clear as a bell to us. And then we said, well, but what would, how could we be convincing? Well, we'd have to show people all of the things that happened here in this community that make reparations just, you know, what, what's been, what has happened. So we were going to tell the story of Black life in Lexington from the first arrival of the first Black person until the present. Barbara made a beautiful outline. <laughs> but of course, that's not, we're not historians. Um, we haven't said that, but we're, I guess we're, maybe now we're historian wannabes, but we're certainly not trained historians. So, Barbara's mother was a realtor and was very influenced by realtor training and learning about the Fair Housing Act. That came down from from Barbara's mother th- to her. So she was convinced fairly early on that housing and segregation in housing was a legitimate focus. And also it made sense because it's the information is discoverable. It hadn't been discovered. It hadn't been pulled together, but it's the public records of who owns what and yeah. so forth. So, so then we when we then we started working on segregation. Only took only took us a couple of years to <laughs> uh, read academic articles and talk with some people and try to figure out what was going on. And Barbara has spent an inordinate amount of time in libraries and including the central library and its Kentucky room, and also in the county court clerk's office doing deed research. That's There's a lot of information in the Kentucky room and at the county clerk's office. Of course, people can access that information pretty easily with the right help. With the right help. <laughs> with the right help. That's key. <laughs> Let's get right into it. So tell us why is Lexington so segregated? I mean, even to this day, I think a lot of people... It's pretty obvious that, you know, our neighborhoods, as diverse as we like to think they are, they're not really. There is a disparity in the land ownership and in the wealth. Give us a little bit of background on how we got here. Well, segregation, if you think about it, is a way that one group of people can create and kind of hoard advantages for themselves. And and essentially, I think I think we both we both agree Lexington is segregated because our white leaders and our government at all levels, federal, state, and local, and white private sector leaders and institutions wanted Lexington to be segregated. And Art Crosby, who was the director of the Lexington Fair Housing Council, he gave a a talk that's been uh, recorded and. There's a quote from that which says, segregation is created through a systemic process to isolate wealth and opportunities for one race over another. So our government and institutions and leaders put policies and practices in place that ensure that it would be segregated. And so many of those remain in place today or the impacts are still there. 
so many of those impacts are ongoing, even today, 55 years after the Ferris Housing Act was passed. Most white people are really unaware of how segregation has benefited them and continues to do so. What kind of policies, whether they're local or federal, contributed to the segregation? We address five major policies or policy areas. I'm sure there are more. These are the ones that make sen- made sense to us that we could identify and defend mm-hmm. in Lexington. And the first is racially restricted restrictive deed covenants. We now know, we could have guessed, but we now know for sure that this was not the only place in the country. These things are everywhere. Mm-hmm. We know, we've seen now deeds in San Antonio, Milwaukee, they're really everywhere. Redlining, which the library is about to have a, a project that shows the community a great deal more about redlining. Um, we'll talk about each of these in more detail. Realtor steering, which is not a government policy, but a, it's a set of practices that was completely sanctioned and even required by the National Association of Realtors. They're the national association that guides realtors for a long, very long time. Some planning and zoning practices, not all, but some. And finally, urban renewal. And, you know, during those times, you it's presented as something beneficial to the city and it's, hey, it's new, it's progress, it's moving forward. But sometimes when you move forward, there's people that are left behind Mm -hmm. because of those policies, uh, one of which is, of course, redlining. So tell us about how redlining was practiced specifically here in Lexington in order to marginalize Black people. The way redlining operated, it's it's the practice of denying home loans for homes in certain neighborhoods because of the race of the people who lived there. And private lenders probably engaged in redlining from the very beginning, but it became national policy in the 1930s with the Federal Housing Administration. And that was a New Deal program, and it used racist criteria that allowed white people to get low-interest long-term mortgage loans to buy homes, but it did not allow black homeowners the the same opportunities. And the FHA presented their criteria in these color-coded maps, and the areas, neighborhoods that were colored red on these maps did not receive loans. There were yellow neighborhoods colored yellow, and they could get mortgages maybe a shorter term. Neighborhoods that were colored green could get mortgages of up to 25 years. And this was really significant because up to then, mortgages had tended to be for maybe five years. So you would borrow money for five years, and then you'd have a big balloon payment, and you'd either have to pay it off or get a new loan. But with long-term mortgages, then you had more certainty and you had lower rates. So it was a huge benefit to white people, but it was denied to black people. And um, specifically how it took place in Lexington, we can't really say exactly what the redlined neighborhoods were in Lexington. We can get a pretty close estimate based on the map that is available now, which was made by the Homeowners Loan Corporation and not the FHA. The FHA maps mysteriously disappeared 
in the 1970s, and the a, a couple of them still exist, but the one for Lexington doesn't. But that HOLC, Homeowners Loan Corporation, they used similar criteria, they used similar methods, and they were done at about the same time. So it's, I think, legitimate to assume that those maps are very close to what the FHA maps would have been like. And the, the Homeowners Loan Corporation map for Lexington exists. A lot of people have seen it, and I'm sure a lot more people will see it during the undesigned the red line. In the in 1970, the Planning Commission kind of acknowledged the impact of this in a report they did about low-income housing. And in that report, they said that until the fair housing legislation of the late 1960s, the only housing available for black people was in, quote, predominantly Negro areas. And they listed those areas as being the housing projects, which were segregated for many, many years, two black subdivisions that were pretty small, the rural African-American hamlets, which we've been learning more about recently, and then 13 neighborhoods that were kind of centered around downtown and these had been deemed low standard neighborhoods because housing conditions were crowded, there were environmental issues, and so on. So African Americans were really concentrated, and th- with the huge expansion of housing that took place really in the starting in the 1920s, but then increasing. After World War II, huge numbers of opportunities for middle-class white people to build wealth by buying homes in appreciating neighborhoods or neighborhoods that eventually did appreciate, that those opportunities were denied to African Americans. You also mentioned the steering by realtors. What role did that play, that realtors kind of essentially steer people to specific neighborhoods or to avoid neighborhoods? Well, we think that steering by realtors is really an important part of the story, but it is a thing that's really hard to prove. We do know that they were that, that realtors were required by their association to steer white people toward neighborhoods that were predominantly white and black people toward neighborhoods that were predominantly black for a long portion of the 20th century. That became illegal in 1968 with the passage of the Fair Housing Act. So one of the things that we have as evidence is an oral history by a white realtor named Ben Story, a very good storyteller, Ben Story, and he describes his assisting the first UK professor, the first black UK professor, Dr. Joseph Scott, and his family in finding a home in a white neighborhood and in this case, it was the all-new Cardinal Valley, which was all-new and all-white. He took a lot of flack for his helping this new black family settle there. He took a lot of flack from fellow realtors, including at like an, at their annual uh, meeting. There was He was harassed. He was threatened. And so we know that he was outside the boundary of the usual realtor practices when he did that. So we also know, the other thing we know for sure is that 
10 years after the Fair Housing Act in 1978, the Kentucky Commission on Human Rights did testing with black and white people posing as they were they were in pairs. I mean, they didn't go in pairs, obviously, but they had the same income, the same kind of house that they were looking for, and they went at different times to the same realtors or real, realty agencies. And also they, t- they were testing rental uh, spaces as well. So the, Com- the Kentucky Commission on Human Rights found steering in two out of three instances in 1987, which is, you know, a- almost 10 years after. The, I'm sorry, 1978, which was 10 years. And then nine years later, it was still 38%, still more than a third of cases. So um, steering is really, there are very recent now uh, studies that are based on similar kinds of tests that show that steering is still rampant in a lot of places. We don't have any evidence here. And we have, in fact, our Realtors Association is working on this very issue hard. So let me drop this little statistic in here that there were a huge array of houses available for white families. So it was easy to you know, steer people toward them. Between at the end of World War II and 1961, there were 15,000, more than 15,000 new home lots available. Sounds like, like a huge number yeah. to me. 225 of those were available to black families. So one less than one and a half percent. And this is just one of the ways that the, we set up the whole wealth gap, which we'll be talking about more. But it, what we do want to give a shout out to the library here, because your local history index gave us the news article with this information about these home lots, which is really like it's it's gold. It was in a lengthy article by Andy Ekdahl. Yeah, that's incredible. And this steering has long term effects till this day, and that's why we see neighborhoods. You know, when you walk out your door and you meet your neighbors. Do they look like you? Do they live like you? Do they have different experiences or similar experiences? And and that's just, you know, it's a, a fundamental way to kind of realize, oh, okay, there's there's disparities in this city. And I do want to give a shout out to your website. It's so informative and it's so well organized. And it's, it, can you give us the URL for that website? www.segregatedlexington.com. And you guys cite all of your resources and all that. So that was, it's a really nice website. I I found it very informative. Thank you. So all of these aspects of segregation and redlining, it is depressing really of where we're at. But I, I, the thing that I liked about your website is that there's remedies for this. There's solutions. And can you talk to us a little bit about what we can do on an individual level and as a government as government policy um, to rectify the effects of segregation and redlining. Since you said individual, we we kind of came prepared to talk more about uh, policy, but but individually there are things that we can learn to do through learning what the true and accurate situation is. And I want to ask Barbara, she'll talk about how one could work to repair segregation through the next door app. Oh. You know the next door app that na- yes. that people participate on. It's kind of been one of my pet peeves that when I I look on the Nextdoor app for my neighborhood, but it covers many surrounding neighborhoods, and there's useful information there, you know, about somebody who's good at, you know, doing electrical work or whatever. But oftentimes what I'll see is when there's been a 
proposal for a new apartment complex or some sort of a change to a neighborhood that uh, people get very upset and very uh, kind of vociferous about protecting the character of their neighborhood. And the fact is, when you live in in my neighborhood, frankly, uh, the character of your neighborhood is that it's all white. And actually, my neighborhood isn't all white. There's some African-American people in my neighborhood, but it's essentially a hugely majority white neighborhood. And when we try to protect that and keep out kinds of uses like multifamily housing, then what we're doing is we're perpetuating the segregation of the past. And when it's an opportunity for us to start diversifying our community, but instead we take the stance that we're going to protect our property values and we're going to protect our neighborhood's character. And essentially we're doing it at the expense of the community as a whole because we're perpetuating this unhealthy segregation. So we will say a provocative thing here, and that is that when people speak about the character of their neighborhood and about their property values, when white people speak about those things, they're speaking about protecting whiteness. They don't realize it mostly. That's part of our reason for doing this project. We're mostly in the business of asking people to recognize a bigger context in which these factors are operating in that bigger context is a history of white people having had a whole lot of advantages, having been given legally a whole lot of advantages that still are advantages, partly because of the way the wealth from owning houses passes through generations. In Le- Leah Rothstein and Richard Rothstein have a new book. Richard Rothstein's the author of The Color of Law, which is the, what, how do we describe that? The Community Reads book for this year. <laughs> it will, it's a book that will change your life. It certainly has changed our lives, I would have to say, uh, substantially. So we highly recommend that book. It's from 2017. And then in, on June 1 this year, Richard Rothstein and Leah Rothstein released a new book called Just Action. And it is their, fairly substantial 270 pages of advice on how to work on these things, and it's mostly policy stuff. I will say, Richard Rothstein always says, to repair the things that we have set in motion because it's very slow to repair, you know, housing settlement patterns, he he calls it incomparably difficult. So just have that in mind, incomparably difficult, let's chip away at it. They suggest for very big things improve resources in existing low-income, predominantly black areas. So invest in housing, schools, medical care, libraries, green space, transportation, and more. Then implement controls, and there are some, to my amazement, that prevent displacing black and Hispanic residents from their home neighborhoods. So confront gentrification. These are all costly, by the way, things I'm suggesting costly and and have to be government-based as a result, I think. Use zoning reform. I love that term, zoning reform, to open exclusive white neighborhoods to blacks, to Hispanics, and to others. Like offer subsidies to African-American homebuyers to move into places where it would be ideal to have an integrated neighborhood. 
and prohibit discrimination against renters who are coming into the neighborhoods with housing subsidies. And the fourth one is protect places where desegregation is having some success. And those protections include economic and social measures, like things that would prevent white flight and encourage and and support black residency, blacks moving in. So there's three neighborhoods that that finish the book. And I'll just say before I even say their names that these authors are very blunt and clear-sighted. They do not lead you down any primrose paths. These these are three neighborhoods where they've implemented, especially the last couple of things, are trying to hold on to integration because they value it so much. And in this case, across several decades, Mount Airy is in Philadelphia. It's a, a big area in Philadelphia. Oak Park in Chicago. And the last one is Cleveland Heights in Cleveland. These are places that in the 50s began to be integrated and valued that and have cultivated it until now. And the harsh thing to know is it's not done. There's all these community groups and efforts that's, that are required to keep the potential for integration and for an integrated, a proudly integrated place to stay integrated. Market forces come along. So all of a sudden, it well, Barbara, you and I, we would like to live in an integrated neighborhood. Well, so would about 30,000 other people. So the housing prices go up. And then the people without generational wealth, that would be black families, can't afford to get in. So then inventive, even including banks and realtors, inventive people have figured out some ways to ameliorate, I guess, these market forces. But it's dicey. And they're, they're always, it's always fragile. One aspect of segregation, because there's so much more that's tied to why African Americans are not at the wealth level of white people. It's it's the jobs. It's you know the the livelihood. Everything. It's not just the land ownership. So if that if the job opportunity and wealth opportunity is not available there, then you know as housing prices go up they're still left behind. That's and that's why true. this is so difficult. That's true. But Richard Rothstein uses this statistic, and I, I might get it wrong, but what he said, and the, he's talking from 2017, that black income is about 60% of white income. Black wealth is somewhere between 10 and 12% of white wealth. So what that means is that that difference between 60% and 10 or 12% can be attributable not to black people not having as good a job or as good an income, but it's essentially the the land policies. And you know, the period that that we've talked about, the this redlining period, the first half of the 20th century essentially, was a really crucial period for home ownership and wealth acquisition. And a huge amount of housing was built and then the, the government had these policies like redlining and that enabled white people to avail themselves of that property, and black people could not. And so white people were developing wealth during that whole first part of the 20th century that's 
passed down through families in one way or another. It, no, it doesn't necessarily mean you inherited it from your parents, but maybe that your parents were able to send you to college because they had home equity backing up their savings. Or it may mean that when your grandparents got old, they were able to take care of them without having to get a second job, you know. So there's so many ways that this accrued wealth from home ownership has benefited white people. And it's certainly not the only contributor to the disparities in, in income, education, health, and so on. But we think it's really crucial. One other interesting statistic. Well, first of all, let's give a plug to an 18-minute video that's on YouTube, available widely. It's called segregatedbydesign.com. And in there, you can learn all these little facts and figures that we're uh, spouting. But one of the things that's important to recognize is that in the home buying period, when many, many working class white families were able to buy their first home, a lot of black people had the same amount of money and could have done it too because homes they were buying into were about were worth about two times the national average income. Am I saying that right? Annual income. I'm not yeah. going to get the figure right. <laughs> it was about two, two times. But by the time the Fair Housing Act came along that allowed black people to buy homes anywhere, those same kind of entry-level homes were five to six times the average annual. And so it's just, in a, you can't catch up. There's no catching up. And then there were those decades where white, white wealth was building. So anyway, it's a, I highly recommend Segregated by Design, the it, video, eight, 18 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly well done. Yes. Earlier, you said that you two weren't historians, but the massive amount of research that went into this project is very admirable. Like I said before, I really enjoyed your website. So I do consider you guys historians. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I really appreciate you guys for coming on the podcast and sharing the information that you've learned. It's really valuable. And I think will be a good supplement to our Community Reads Project with The Color of Law. So I hope people take the opportunity to take a look at it and dig a little deeper in order to make changes and and find remedies for. Well, we also want to thank the library generally. You know, I've spent some time in the Kentucky room and the librarians there were always so helpful. They would keep a cart for me of, you know, documents. There are all kinds of documents in the library. I mean, we just scratched the surface. And then that the service by which we could look up articles online from home, especially during the pandemic, find articles that we wanted to read, and then send a request and get a, a photocopy of the microfilm of that newspaper article. Incredibly you all are useful. wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we are happy to we do. Our Kentucky Room staff is amazing. Um, it's not because I'm I'm biased, but they are. They do really do good work um, and we appreciate it. And I count myself lucky to work with them. It's our passion. It's what we do. Um, we love it. I don't think that librarians are meant to be bystanders and when when projects like this come along, that's why it makes us um, get up every morning and come to work. Um, to be able to share this information with our community. So thank you so much for for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm, or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at lexpublib.org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.